Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this podcast, we take up the $920 million fine and penalty paid by J.P. Morgan for spoofing. We look at how the penalty could have been much higher. J.P. Morgan's robust compliance remediation helped lower it. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back in with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, where we take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds of a compliance-related topic. Matt, first of all, uh, welcome back. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. Matt, we had a case last week that certainly piqued your interest and uh, also did mine. It's <clears throat> J.P. Morgan was hit with a $920 million fines and penalties and disgorgement for commodity trade commodities trading fraud. Could you uh, give us a background to this case? Yeah, sure. So um, this was some misconduct that unfolded between 2008 into 2016 uh, for a a form of misconduct in the financial trading world known as spoofing. Um, Unless you really are in commodities trading, you don't need to know that much about spoofing. The short description of it is that uh, traders would place bogus buy and sell orders in some certain good. Uh, In this case, uh, it was two separate types of misconduct running at the same time that were both spoofing. Uh, One was in precious metals, uh, particularly silver, but also gold and a few others. And the other was in the U.S. Treasuries market, where spoofing is employees uh, placing these bogus orders to make the prices of those goods go wacko. um, And then you cancel them at the last minute. You never have any intention of fulfilling these orders. But because you are placing the fake orders and you know they're fake and you know you're going to cancel them, you then can arbitrage some of the price discrepancy and pocket the difference. That's what spoofing is. Uh, There were two different spoofing misconduct schemes running at roughly the same time at J.P. Morgan uh, from 2008 into 2016. Um, Eventually, the conduct became known to the Justice Department J.P. Morgan did not self-disclose this. I have to admit, I forget from all of the details how the Justice Department did get wind of this. But this was a major issue that, you know, you're trading with other banks. So some of the other employees at other banks were also in on the spoofing trade. Um, but that became a big deal. A lot of bankers were indicted personally. Several J.P. Morgan bankers uh, have pleaded out. And uh, so that is the result here. One other detail that I am sure, Tom, you and I will talk about later as we discuss this case, is that J.P. Morgan in 2015 had already pleaded guilty to different spoofing behavior in the foreign exchange market. Um, This misconduct was happening while that was uh, of that issue was being resolved. It then continued after the guilty plea. 
Um, and then we wound up with uh, this uh, happening at long last, um, that the $920 million fine came down from the Justice Department and the CFTC and the Securities and Exchange Commission. They, the, the whole big thing came down last week. That's where we are. So the number, I think, um, many people felt was was too low. But what you uh, determined, Matt, was that J.P. Morgan received an aggregate discount of 12.5% off the bottom bottom standard fine uh, recommended by the U.S. sentencing guidelines. And you listed several of the compliance program improvements that J.P. Morgan made. I was wondering if you just might run through that list for us. Yeah, so there were a couple of factors working in J.P. Morgan's favor here. Um, First was extensive cooperation with the Justice Department and the SEC and the CFTC and other agencies that were involved. Um, Second was remedial action taken by J.P. Morgan after these scandals broke. Uh, That included firing a bunch of employees implicated in the misconduct. Uh, But the third, and I think interesting for our readers here, was that they uh, adopted heightened internal controls and substantially increased the resources devoted to compliance. That was the line in the Justice Department's deferred prosecution agreement. I think I might have forgotten that detail that in addition to the $920 million fine, there's a three-year DPA. But uh, we had cooperation, we had remediation, and then we had an extensive revamp of J.P. Morgan's compliance uh, operations. That is what got it the discount, even though this was egregious misconduct that went on for a while involving numerous employees, and it is a repeat incident because we had that 2015 conviction uh, that had already happened and this was still going on. So that looked really bad. These are the factors that are really good. And lo and behold, the big factor that received a lot of attention was the compliance program expansion. Matt, you and I on uh, other podcasts have talked about different theories of punishment, different theories of why you would bring an enforcement action, whether it's criminal or civil. I guess the message I'm getting from this case, uh, really with uh, some of the key FCPA cases we've seen in 2020, is that the government's giving real credit for companies that cooperate and extensively remediate. Do Do you see that pattern as well, or do you think something else is going on? No, I, I think that is very valid to call out that it's that pattern, um, which I am okay with that concept unto itself, but we are not really seeing any sanction or punishment for recidivist behavior. Um, like they pleaded to a charge in 2015 for the foreign exchange spoofing. And then we have this still happening here. And Tom, you and I have talked about this issue on my mind in previous podcasts that is still not yet been answered. But what will happen when the day comes that we have a recidivist corporate offender who has gone through the FCPA enforcement program already and won favorable treatment the first time, and then they violate the FCPA a second time? I have kept on saying if you violate it a second time, then that means by definition you didn't have an effective program, which you were supposed to have the first time. We haven't seen that yet. This J.P. Morgan case, it's not FCPA, but still it's it's like repeat corporate conduct, and we are rewarding them for the good behavior and the cleanup afterward, but there doesn't seem to be much punishment for the bad behavior in the past and then the bad behavior on the second time around, which is what 
this spoofing is now. So I I still struggle with, you know, how did we get here? And we can talk about all the compliance program improvements separately, but as a matter of what is the DOJ doing with enforcement policy, I think you're right. But I still have a lot of unanswered questions about, you know, where's the punishment for the bad stuff? Because I don't see that. The uh, recidivist issue is one that has come up enough in FCPA cases that you and I have certainly uh, both written and talked about it. But the, um, I guess I would have to come down that for, for whatever reason, I have not seen the DOJ take recidivism as perhaps hard or be as stringent about it as I have seen them be in cases with companies that have had their first FCPA uh, violation. I, I don't know. And I mean, to be clear, I don't think we have yet seen a recidivist company that has gone through the enforcement policy twice. We've seen a lot of people with prior FCPA trouble that have now gone through the new enforcement policy. It was only adopted three years ago, uh, and they've gone through that a second time. But I don't think we have yet seen somebody who's already gone through that, violated it again, and now they're going to go through the FCPA enforcement policy a, a second time. Because if one of the prongs of the FCPA enforcement policy is you have an effective compliance program by the time we're done. Well, if you violate the FCPA program a second time, then you didn't have an effective program when you got it resolved. Um, and I don't know. I'd like, I'm still waiting to see how will we see punishment for bad acts and faulty compliance programs. Um, it's a question for a different day. This JP Morgan issue isn't quite on point, but it's not that far off point that, you know, like they had a big mistake here. They had a big mistake in the past. I, I'm thrilled that they have a lot of compliance program improvements and you get some reward for that. But guys, you had a big mistake and you had a big mistake in the past and there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of punishment for that. I mean, with all due respect to people who say 920 million is not chump change, when you're JP Morgan, Yes, it's chump change. It's not a lot of cash for J.P. Morgan. They they can certainly afford it. Matt, you drew one other analogy from a little bit more of the FCPA-focused world where you took a look at some of the updated uh, 2020 guidance uh, or evaluation of an effective compliance program. And under root cause analysis, the uh, Department of Justice had posed several questions in a paragraph, and and uh, the last one you emphasized, I think, uh, absolutely appropriately, and I'll just read it. Does the company review and adapt its compliance program based on lessons learned from its own misconduct and or that of other companies facing similar risks? And I think most compliance professionals are certainly cognizant of the first uh, clause in that, that sentence about reviewing your own program, but I'm not sure that second clause is thought of as much. Were you trying to emphasize that second clause or something else in that? Well, I just think that that line, does the company review and adapt its compliance program based on lessons learned from its own misconduct or from other companies, I, that fits very neatly with what J.P. Morgan has done itself. And it is a cautionary tale for other banks, because as I said before, this spoofing misconduct was not confined to J.P. Morgan. Um, there were a lot of banks involved in it. I would not be surprised if other large banks, some of your traders are trying to do spoofing right now. And you have been put on notice by this settlement that J that the Justice Department is looking at this issue. They do take it at least somewhat seriously. Um, and then you have to think through what did J.P. Morgan do to 
crackdown on spoofing abuses after the Justice Department had them in the crosshairs and look and say, well, geez, man, should we do something like that now? So if we ever get in trouble for spoofing, it looks like we were cognizant of the threat. We're trying to step up to it. Um, I think you should. And Tom, I I think it's worth maybe taking a few minutes to review what were the actual compliance program improvements J.P. Morgan has implemented since this all bloomed into public view, I think, in 2017 or 18. Um, You know, but the bank, for example, increased its budget for internal audit and boosted the internal audit functions headcount by about 400. Uh, They'd increased the budget for internal audit by $100 million. Sounds like a lot until you realize that J.P. Morgan spends nearly $10 billion every year uh, on technology alone. And this is $100 million, I guess, spread over four or five years on internal audit. Like, it's not a lot of money. It's not chump change. Uh, but, you know, it's it's not that much in the grand scheme of things. Um, but the bank updated its business conduct training to include specific scenarios about spoofing. Uh, the compliance department started issuing bulletins to staff at regular intervie- intervals, and they flagged other firms busted for spoofing. Um, they were expanding their surveillance of employee communications, which is a big thing in the financial sector. Um, you really do keep close surveillance on employee communications with other bankers and employees. Um, they had a whole new platform. It was being able to process a hundred million messages a month. Um, interestingly enough, they also built a supervisory portal for managers of these traders uh, where you could look at the risk profile of employees and they had various risk metrics for employee behavior um, including metrics like what's their attendance at compliance training so hey rock on that we have that there Um, whether the employees trading for the month crossed any thresholds that should have required supervisory approval. So, you know, you, the manager, could look at your traders to see a risk profile. Is this guy going off the range? We have to zero in and pay closer attention. And then I think uh, one of the last ones was that um, the analysts that were studying employee surveillance, uh, they developed a new system where every single message that might have been flagged as potentially concerning, that got attention from an analyst, every single one. And spoiler alert, that's not always the case at a lot of banks. Um, They get red flags about suspicious employee activity, and they don't have the manpower to have compliance analysts go and look into what's really going on. Um, JP Morgan changed that, so every single red flag was investigated by an analyst. So good for them. Um, A lot of testing, a lot of all the other stuff that we talk about, But very clearly, they were tailoring their program around the risk that was at hand, which was spoofing. And that is something that other people should look at and think about, especially if you are in the trading world where you, too, might get sucked into a spoofing thing from some knucklehead employees that you want to try and crack down on. What J.P. Morgan did shows a way that you could try to crack down on that. So let me change the focus a little bit because – There was an article today in the Wall Street Journal by Dave Michaels entitled J.P. Morgan Probe Revived by Regulators Data Mining. And it talked about how through the use of data analytics, the CFTC was able to revive a probe 
of spoofing that they had closed related to, I believe, uh, gold and silver and perhaps other precious metals um, and, and utilize these uh, data analytics to determine that spoofing had occurred. And it drove home for me a couple of points. And maybe I wanted to see what your overall themes or, or overall senses might be of this article. Number one, if the regulators now have access and are using data analytics does that up pressure on uh, corporations, banks, or other regulated industries to also do that internally? And uh, let me just read some numbers because the CFTC brought in a Chicago-based company called CME Group. And CME Group had looked at uh, data amounts of 1.7 terabytes. Uh, that was more than the CFTC had the ability to store or even access in the cloud. So um, these are huge amounts of data. And uh, I think three or four years ago, the SEC first talked about data analytics. And it seems now the regulators have access to these types of tools and are going to use this uh, to data mine companies, I would say, in a wide variety of areas. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely true. Um, What was interesting to me is that, so when CFTC first wanted to look at all of this data. They couldn't because there was too much and they didn't have the technology for it. Well, lo and behold, seven years later, they just ran it all in the cloud. And that is a point that is worth remembering now is that now that we are fully into cloud computing to support sophisticated analytics, there's no such thing as there's too much data. We can't handle it all. Yeah, you can. You just put it in the cloud. There is limitless data crunching capability in the cloud. The CFTC saw that, and the CFTC, therefore, was able to do this. Um, So I think, you know, certainly if you came back to regulators and said, we couldn't do the data analytics because we didn't have the technology and the number crunching capability, dude, yeah, you did. You just you had to get the right provider to do it over the cloud. Um, you would have maybe trickier issues with, do you have the right personnel to code up an analytics program? And it is worth noting that the CFTC went and hired people who had worked at Chicago Mercantile Exchange and who had worked in uh, precious metals trading to be able to take that data and figure out these are the algorithms we want to design with our limitless cloud computing power to be able to do the analysis, they had to go out and hire those staff. And I'm sure those staff are probably not cheap, but nonetheless, like, look, if the SEC can do it, if the CFTC can do it, if the justice department can do it, then you have to be able to do it too, because the federal government is clueless about technology. It's antiquated systems. They don't pay as well. Um, All sorts of funny stuff like that, that we have heard for many years And those excuses are falling to the wayside now, thanks to cloud computing. And if it's falling to the wayside for the federal government, it certainly is not going to be a valid excuse for companies in the private sector where you do have better resources and you do have better technology. Um, They're going to expect that, you know, like one of them said, I think it was a former Justice Department official about two years ago. He said, like, good, guys, if we can do this, you certainly can do it. And they can do it. This, this is the proof, is this article in the Wall Street Journal, which is worth reading. Um, so companies will need to start thinking about how we embrace data analytics with both hands. 
Well, Matt, this has been a fascinating exploration. Uh, quite frankly, we've mined it uh, much deeper than I had originally thought we could. So kudos for writing about it. Thanks for bringing it up, and we will continue to follow this one. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I've linked to Matt's article in our show notes, and I've also linked to the Wall Street Journal article that we referenced during this podcast. This podcast is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would leave a review as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only compliance podcast that takes a deep dive into a compliance topic each week. Thanks again for listening. Matt and I look forward to visiting with you again next week. Compliance Into the Weeds is also a proud part of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.